You're listening to a message from Victory Christian Center in Farmer City, Illinois. For more information on Victory, please contact us at vccfarmercity.org. Well, good morning. We're going to continue in the series we've been in the series we have been in. We're talking about the honor of God and we're looking at some examples from scripture of honor and likewise examples of dishonor. We'll see a little of both this morning. Um, let's start in the same place we've started almost every message, our core text for the series, which is first Samuel chapter two, verses 29 and 30. Um, again, I think I think most of you have been here, but the context being this is God speaking to the prophet Eli, who has not been doing his job well, and judgment is falling in his life. But God is saying to Eli, why do you kick at my sacrifice and my offering, which I have commanded in my dwelling place, and honor your sons more than me, to make yourselves fat with the best of all the offerings of Israel, my people? Therefore the Lord God of Israel says... I said indeed that your house and the house of your father would walk before me forever. But now the Lord says, far be it from me. I'm thinking those are words I don't want to hear from him. <laughs> Let's see. Well done, now, good and faithful servant. That's good. Far be it from me. I, I don't want to hear those words. For those who honor me, I will honor. And those who despise me will be lightly esteemed. Um, so we've already talked about a lot of this in the aftermath. And this is typical when God delivers a word of the Lord and he says, here's how it's going to be. It doesn't always necessarily mean, and it's going to be that way tomorrow. Sometimes time passes before the fulfillment comes. Um, it's first example of that in the whole Bible. Um, he said in the day they ate of the fruit in the garden, they would die. And spiritually, they died the, died the moment they ate it. But physically, it took almost another thousand years before that was completely and totally fulfilled. And that's, that's a, a good example. And so in this case, um, there was time that passed when God said these words. And then when judgment came, his sons died in battle. Eli fell and broke his neck and he died. And all this began to be fulfilled. Years had passed. Um, Samuel was a prophet growing up under Eli. Eli was his boss. I got to thinking about this this morning. And I, this is just an observation that may or may not be completely accurate, but it almost looks like where Eli did not do the best job raising his own boys in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, he made up for it in Samuel. Um, his mom Hannah dedicated him to the Lord and as soon as he was weaned brought him to the temple and dropped him off brought him birthday presents once a year but he grew up in the temple being raised by Eli and Eli I think did a much better job Samuel went on to be a highly respected prophet um, he was a prophet who it, it was in his lifetime it was synonymous with um, how do I want to say this if he said it you could take it to the bank. Samuel did not deliver a prophecy that did not come to pass. And he got known for that. That was his reputation. He was not one of the prophets that did signs and wonders. He was not a prophet that had a showdown on Mount Carmel and called down fire from heaven. None of that. He, he did not have those kind of signs and wonders. The mark on his ministry was if he said the words, you could take it to the bank. That was his reputation. That was his calling. And that's what he went on to be. But he grew up under Eli. And so I think it's very possible. Eli got some things right where he knew he got them wrong with his son. But anyway, so it, years had passed. Samuel had grown up. By the time this prophecy was fulfilled and Eli went home to be with the Lord, um, Samuel was a grown man. And he stepped into the office and did it right and did it well. But then also in that same day, you'll remember, they lost the Ark of the Covenant. It was in a battle. In fact, if I remember right, it's not like the battle was around the temple. They decided, hey, let's pull the ark out of the temple and take it to the battlefield with us. Can I put it in my words? As a good luck piece. They didn't have the word of the Lord to do that. And it's not that that had never happened before. I don't, I'm, I'm not saying that necessarily. But it's, it's, they were doing everything wrong on this one. 
And so they had taken it to the battlefield with them. They lost the battle, and it became a spoil of war and went to the Philistines. From that point forward, the Ark of the Covenant, not one time ever again to this day, never went back in that temple. Um, and what I'm referring to is the, if you remember, uh, Moses had a tabernacle that was portable. The temple was portable. It was a tent. And they took it with them around the wilderness, and they took it with them. And even up to this point, it was a tent. And so the Ark of the Covenant takes off, leaves the tent. It heads off with the Philistines. I don't know how long it was over there. It was a while. Um, you can read about it. Fun things happened. They threw it in their temple next to their gods, and they'd come in the next morning, and their gods would be bow- bowing on the ground in front of the Ark. And arms broke off, and all kinds of really interesting things that really irritated the Philistines. Over a period of time, they decided, all right, we got to get rid of this Ark. <laughs> this thing is not good for us. And so they loaded it on a cart, put a couple oxen on it or something, kind of slapped it and said, go. Kind of pointed it in the right direction and said, get out of here. And I so across the border and the edges of Israel, there's some farmers out one day going, there's an oxen coming. What has it got? Oh, look, it's the ark. Well, they recognized what they was and they valued, but not knowing what to do, there was no owner's manual what to do if an ark comes by one day. So they grab it and they, I don't know if, the, in my mind, this is can't be accurate, they threw it in the barn. <laughs> We well, don't want it out in the rain and the elements. You got to do something with it. I don't know if they had barns. The Bible talks about barns. Anyway, they brought it in. And we'll read in the verse this morning over time, because they had the ark of the Lord on their property and they honored and respected the ark. Everything they did prospered. Farming got really good for that family. The ark was in the barn, <laughs> you know? Things went well. And uh, and then to finish my first point, eventually King David finds out it's there and says, no, 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 bring that to Jerusalem. And now remember, he wanted to build a house for the Lord. We talked about that, and God said no. And so, okay, then I can't build that house. So what he did was he built his own tent. He, he didn't go get the tent of Moses. He built his own newer it's called the Tabernacle of David instead of the Tabernacle of Moses. And so when the ark finally came back into Israel and made it into Jerusalem, it went into a tent David made. The tent it came out of, never again. Past another generation when Solomon did build the temple, somewhere in that temple there's a closet where they took the tent of Moses and threw it in the closet. But the ark never went in there again. So just history, I like that kind of stuff. But I want to look at David this morning. What I want to look at is that event when David found out, man, the ark is sitting on the edges of Israel. Let's bring that home. That's symbolic of the presence of God and everything with that. We need to honor it. We need to bring that ark and put it in a place of honor. And he made his temporary temple there in, in Jerusalem. So that's the account I want to look at. I'm going to Second uh, Samuel chapter 6 and verse 12. Um, now, I was told King David saying, The Lord has blessed the house of Obed-Edom, there's the farmer, and all that belongs to him because of the ark. So David went and brought the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with gladness. He's bringing that into Jerusalem. And so it was when those bearing the ark of the Lord had gone six paces that he sacrificed oxen and fatted sheep. That's in my message today, but I'm trying to read that verse and I'm wondering, did they do that every six steps? It's something, I even think that because that sounds like something David would do. We get that thing. Because you remember, I'm not going to preach it this morning. The first time they started to do that is when they did. They just threw it on another cart, and they're dragging it into town, and they did not do it the way directed in the law to do it. There was verbiage in the law of Moses, in the Old Covenant, here's how you move the ark. They didn't bother to read that. They weren't doing it the right way. The cart shook, and a guy went to steady it, and he died, because you're not allowed to touch it. And... It stopped everything. And they put that thing back in the shed and said, okay, we did that wrong, and went back home and got the book out and says, how do we do this right, and kind of figured it out. And so this is their second attempt. And so I really couldn't see them. Every six steps, stop. 
Sacrifice. Love you, Lord. <laughs> Six more steps. All right. Another one. Love you, Lord. <laughs> I don't know. I, I can see him doing that. I don't know. But anyway, verse 14. Then David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. That's really the verse I'm trying to get to. All right. So David danced before the Lord with all his might and was wearing a linen ephod. Do you suppose he's just putting on a show? He's got a whole bunch of Israel around him, and he's trying to look, I don't know. I don't know what he would try to look like. Like, I don't have an answer for that. Is he putting on a show? That's all I got. No. I think you know where I'm going. He is expressing his heart to the Lord. He is so excited about what he's doing, and he's wanting to honor the ark, which is the presence of God, and he's wanting to show honor to his God, and his heart is 100% in it. He is not putting on a show. Now, you could say he's making a show. He is making an outward display of what's on the inside. He is making visible his adoration for his heavenly father on the inside, um, but he's not putting on a show. Um, he is returning the ark of the Lord to a place of honor, and he is all excited about it. And he's dancing with all his might. Um, if you were to dig into that Hebrew word, dancing with all his might, um, it has the implication swirling around. So this dancing with all his might somehow includes spinning and they're shouting and it's, it's very exuberant. Okay? This is a big deal. Verse 15. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the trumpet. This is like a big parade. And they got the high school band out. I don't know. And they're making a big deal out of it. Why? Because it is a big deal. This is a big deal. They are returning the presence of God, the Ark of the Covenant, to a place of rightful honor where it had been wandering through foreign lands and had been sitting in a barn. Honored in the barn, but there's better places to honor an Ark of the Covenant. So this is a big deal. And I'll say this. Honor will make a big deal out of things that need to be honored. It's a right thing. Verse 16, now as the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, I'm going to call her Mikal. I don't quite know the exact pronunciation. Now for a long time I just thought, do they mean Michelle? There needs to be an E in there or something, I don't know. Or is it Michael? Does it sound like a boy's name? But I'm guessing it's Mikal. Because I know I's are a long E sound in Hebrew. So that's what I'm going with. If I'm wrong, I'm wrong. But you know who I'm talking about. We're going to call her Mikal. So anyway, as the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Mikal, Saul's daughter, looked through a window and saw King David leaping and swirling before the Lord. And she despised him in her heart. There's the opposite of honor. So they brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place in the midst of the tabernacle that David had erected for it. And then David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And when David had finished offering burnt offerings and peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts. And then he distributed among all the people, among the whole multitude of Israel, both women and the men, to everyone a loaf of bread, a piece of meat, and a cake of raisins. And so all the people departed everyone to his house. One thing I see in there, they just had a huge honoring church service where they gave glory to the Lord and honored His presence and ministered to Him. And then when they got done with that, He spoke blessing over the people. And then they had a potluck. That's what I see. So it is biblical to follow church services with food. I'm good with that. We need to do more of that. We have an example right here, and it's honoring I like it. So David's pulling out all the stops. He says, not only have we done this to the Lord, I'm going to minister to the people. On one level, I I see this because I want this to be as special to them as this is to God. And I don't want them to soon forget the day we brought the ark back to Jerusalem. And so I'm going to make something tangible. How do you speak to a lot of people? Minister to their belly. And they'll remember. And so that's what he's doing. So, verse 20, Then David returned 
to bless his own household. Now the day's over, he sent the people home, he's coming home to his house, and he's blessing his own house. And once again, is his heart right before the Lord? Yes. So David returned to bless his household, and Michal, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, How glorious was the king of Israel today, uncovering himself today in the eyes of the maids of his servants as one of the base fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. That's a little King Jamesy. But uh, do you sense the tone of disrespect in her voice? She is not happy with him. Um, and there's a very specific kind of, not even tone, but there's a specific way she's speaking to him that I, I want to draw attention to. That's sarcasm. She is speaking sarcastically to her husband because she is not happy. She has d- despised his actions and she's using her tone of disrespect through sarcasm. Now, pause for a moment. What is sarcasm? Um, by definition, it is insincere language used to convey insult or scorn, which fits. Um, in other words, you are saying the opposite of what you really mean with the intent of injuring them with the words. Um, the Cambridge Dictionary says uh, these are remarks that mean the opposite of what they say. They're made to criticize someone or something in a way that is amusing to others, but um, annoying to the person criticized. Uh, similar in Webster's, Webster's says it's the use of words that mean the opposite of what you really mean, but especially in order to insult someone and show irritation or be funny. And so they bring out, and this is consistent with our culture, we always, I want to say always, largely mask sarcasm with humor so that everybody else laughs at the sarcasm except the person we're criticizing. They get hurt by the words and everyone watching laughs because it's funny. That's how we tend to use sarcasm. Not necessarily what's going on in this case. I don't know if there are any witnesses and she didn't sound real funny. But she is saying the opposite of what she means with the intent of hurting him. She intends for her words to cut him deeply. That's why she said them. Many times you'll find that sarcasm is rooted in bitterness. It is in her case. And bitterness is a dangerous thing. I believe it's the book of James that talks about if you don't deal with bitterness quickly, it will drop a root in you. Um, The King James uses the phrase, a root of bitterness. The longer it's in you without being dealt with, the harder it's going to be to get it out of you. I I, I think about um, at home and, and on the church property, we have several places on the church property where trees like to plant themselves like weeds and and if you catch them quick there's the, this tree right out front here has those little whirly gig things it drops and they'll plant themselves now if you can catch it before it gets too tall you can just two fingers you can just pop that thing right out and you're good to go you let it go a little longer and it's going to take more than two fingers now you're going to have to get a really good hold on that and get that thing out you let it go a little longer yet And you're not going to get it with two hands. You're going to have to go get a shovel. And you're going to have to dig down and get enough root exposed to get a good grip on it so you can get it out. You let it go even further. Now what you're doing is you're digging around it with a shovel. You're trying to get down deep. If you can, get under it a little bit. But you got to get down into the root. This is what I do. You get down there and you wrap a chain in around this root. And you tie it to the truck. And then you put that truck in four low and you crawl that thing out of the ground. Why? It's dropped a root. Scripture compares bitterness to that. If you let bitterness sit on the inside of you and you don't deal with it, it's growing. And it's dropping root down on the inside of you. And the longer you let that go, the harder it's going to be to get out. And eventually it will overtake you. I mean, you can read the book of James talks about that. That's not my message today. But that's what's going on here. Sarcasm is primarily spoken from a root of bitterness. And it's with the intent of hurting the person they're bitter towards. Um, I will say, 
I don't think anyone would argue that's wrong. Love will not do that. Love does not speak with the intent of hurting someone. Love will speak truth. Love can speak correction, but love will never intend to hurt you. No, love wants to edify you. Love wants to build you up. Love will never hurt someone. So in verse 20, Mikhail says, How glorious. That's also translated dignified. How dignified was the king of Israel today, uncovering himself today in the eyes of the maids of his servants as one of the base fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. Some translators have latched onto that and they almost give the impression that David was naked. He danced around naked. Or maybe he was danced around in his underwear. And it almost sound that way. The NIV um, says how the king of Israel has distinguished himself today, disrobing in the sight of the slave girls of his servants, as any vulgar fellow would do. So that almost gives the implication, he's not wearing enough. He's naked. The uh, the Living Bible. Now again, this is the original, and it's a paraphrase. It's not an actual translation, but that's how he took it. It says, "How glorious the King of Israel looked today! He exposed himself to girls along the street like a common pervert." I don't really think that's what the Hebrew text was going for. Um, pretty sure if you study the Old Testament, um, nudity was not a way to honor and worship the Lord. Pretty sure I can build a case for the opposite. And David's heart was for the Lord. And so, no, nah, I, I don't think that's what's going on here. So what we can do, there's a, a second testimony. Um, this same passage is also in Chronicles, so let's jump over there real quick. First Chronicles chapter 15, verse 27. So same account, but we're in a different book of the Old Testament. Um, David was clothed with a robe of fine linen, so that is not naked. Um, as were, here's your clue, as were all the Levites who bore the ark, and all the singers, and Shenaniah, the music master with the singers, there's, I don't know if he's the high priest or the worship leader, but something like that. David also wore a linen ephod. That's something the priest wears. Alright. Thus all Israel brought up the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn and with trumpets and with cymbals and making music with guitars and harps. That's my story. And it happened as the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the city of David that Michal, Saul's daughter, looked through a window and saw King David whirling and playing music, and she despised him in her heart. The picture this one paints isn't that he was naked, but he was wearing what priests wear. In other words, he was not wearing what kings wear. Kings would be wearing, and I'm picturing, and this may not be entirely accurate, but I'm picturing like a nice robe, you know, the king's robe with the the big fluffy, almost furry on the edges, and he's got a crown, you know, and whatever would be dignified and proper for a king of that day to wear. What a king does not wear is the robe that a priest wears. The priests would be beneath in most, certainly in Mikal's mind. And so she sees her husband out the window, not acting like a king, not dignified as the king of Israel. Rather, he's swirling around and dancing, wearing priestly garments. And in her mind, beneath him. And as you can kind of put together, this being her husband, this is embarrassing to her. This is not making her look good. She's not happy about this. Are you following what's going on here? So she had on different robes. And he's dancing. Let me add one more layer to that. That Hebrew word that suggests that he's swirling and spinning and dancing very exuberantly. There is an interesting detail. Now that word is used many times in the Old Testament. But in every place it's ever used except this one, it only refers to women. 
the dance that he's doing is a woman dance, apparently. Because that's the only way this word is ever used. This word is used to describe women as they swirl and worship and dance before the Lord. This is the only time in the entire Bible that this word is used to describe a man. Now, I'm not Jewish. I don't know exactly what all that means. But I think it's just adding fuel to her fire. Not only is he not wearing dignified robes, he's acting like a fool and he's dancing like a woman. I could almost picture he's dancing with the women doing the same dance. They're all doing it together. He's just so excited. He doesn't want to hang out with all those men that are just standing there. Let's get in with the women because they're worshiping. And he's dancing with them. And she's embarrassed. This is not how a king behaves himself. And you get that tone when, when she addresses him. She's not happy. So he's excited. He's worshiping the Lord. She's embarrassed. So what's this tell us? It's a heart issue. His heart's right. His heart is for the Lord. Her heart is not. Her heart is about her. You're embarrassing me. This is not how my husband is supposed to behave himself. Can I remind you my husband's the king? And you're not acting like it. So it's interesting to point out Um. Every time we've seen her name in this passage, not one time has it said, King David's wife. Every time scripture refers to her, did you catch what it called her? Every time, Michal, Saul's daughter. Didn't even mention that they're married, although they are. Pretty sure this is his first wife. Pretty sure this is the, he won her hand in marriage by killing that really big giant guy named Goliath. This is the wife of his youth, the king's daughter. You remember all that? That's her. But here we're saying, this is Saul's daughter. What's that saying? She has a heart just like dad. The apple didn't fall too far from the tree. That's one of the things that got Saul in trouble. Was he is his own pride. And she's no different. And now she's embarrassed. And She's looking out for her. So she, I'm trying to picture, I don't know if this is entirely accurate, but she was raised in noble, nobility? I don't sound right. Royalty. She grew up the daughter of a king. She was born in the king's palace, whatever that looked like. She always ate at the king's table. She's not known probably a day of hard work in her life, but she's daughter of a king. And she has an expectation from this David guy. Um, this is how you treat me. This is the kind of life I expect to live. She's got a lot of things going on that are all about her. And they're not about David. They're not about God. So she's a prime example of disrespect. Um, before I leave, before I leave the whole sarcasm thing, can I just point out, you do what you want with this. I'm not making any big decrees from my pulpit. Here's how it will be. Nothing like that. This is my observation. The more I study, especially stories like this one and passages like this one, the less I like sarcasm. Uh, on one exam, one on one point, how does that work for a person of faith? Because sarcasm, by design, you're saying what you don't mean. You're saying what the opposite of what you mean. And when you think about a person of faith. Your words matter. Um, your Heavenly Father's words matter. How does He do things? With words. How is faith acted on? With words. How did this rock of dirt come to be that we're standing on? At some point, God, I do think He stood, but from His throne, He decreed, let there be and a whole lot of stuff started being that wasn't there before. He created, but he didn't lift a finger. I want to say he lifted a tongue, but that sounds funny. He didn't lift a finger. He spoke, and things happen. That's how faith operates. Now, I'm not saying we exist and operate on that same level, but he wants us to. We're supposed to operate the way he operates. We're king's kids. Not saying we've arrived. But we should be moving in that direction. What's Proverbs say? 
death and life are in the power of the tongue, not your fingers, not your arms, your mouth. So words matter. And yet in in sarcasm, you're saying the exact opposite of what you really mean. Um, I'm thinking of James. Go to James 3.10. says, Out of the same mouth proceed blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not be so. Does a spring send forth fresh water and bitter from the same opening? Can a fig tree, my brethren, bear olives? Or a grapevine bear figs? Thus, no spring yields both salt water and fresh. And you go study that in its context, and even right there he's talking about words. He said we should not have both blessing and cursing coming out of our mouth. We should have coming out of our mouth what we expect and what we intend, and none of the other. So it's the opposite. Um, We don't speak life and death. We don't speak blessing and cursing. We don't speak faith and a bunch of junk out of the same mouth. And so I struggle with that. So Mikhail is speaking with sarcasm from a heart full of bitterness. She's speaking sarcastically to who? Not just her husband, to the king of Israel. And here's a funny thing. When you start speaking to the king of Israel, now this isn't just any king. This is a king who was appointed by, he did not win a general election. There was no vote. They didn't have to worry about whether the election was rigged or not. No, he was appointed by God. He, God put him in that office. And when you start criticizing God's appointed, he takes it personally. I can give you lots of biblical examples of that. I'll give you a quick one. Remember Saul before he got saved? What was he doing? Running around killing Christians, arresting him, throwing him in jail. And then when he got out on the road to Damascus and Jesus shows up to have words with him, remember what Jesus said? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Not Christians. He didn't know he was persecuting Jesus. He knew he was persecuting Christians. But Jesus said, no, you're persecuting me. God's like that. Be careful what you say about his kids. He takes it personal. So in this case, she's not just criticizing David. She's criticizing the one who put him in that office. So let's go back to 2 Samuel 6 and pick up where we left off in verse 21. Here's David's response. So David said to Michal, It was before the Lord. What's he saying? All my dancing and swirling and all that you saw me doing was before the Lord. And then he gets a little pointed. Before the Lord. Remember him? The one who chose me instead of your father? And all his house, which seems to me uh, includes you, sweetheart. She got pointed with him. He's getting pointed back. Oh, my. He chose me instead of your father and all his house to appoint me ruler over the people of the Lord over Israel. Therefore, I will play music before the Lord, and I will be even more undignified than this and will be humble in my own sight. One thing I hear in that, you thought that was embarrassing? You ain't seen nothing yet. I'll be even more humble than that. But that's his heart. He says, I'll do anything for my Lord and God. I will humble myself. I will embarrass myself. I will get on my face and bow before him. I don't care if I am the king. But as for the maidservants of whom you have spoken, by them I will be held in honor. What's part of his beef? (laughs) Because I'm not held in honor by you. Hmm. Look at verse 23. Therefore Michal, the daughter of Saul, there it is again, had no children to the day of her death. Now there's more than one way to interpret that. Some historians interpret that from David's point of view. And they say... Um, one of two ways, but they basically say, you know why she didn't have any kids till the day she died? Because David divorced her. Now some think literally. Wrote her papers and sent her pack and said, we're done. Other historians say, no, he didn't divorce her. Literally. But he did effectively. He sent her home to her house. He never called for her again. And in that day and in that king- kingdom, you only come if you're called for it. 
And if he doesn't call for her again, she didn't see him again until the day she died. And she, in order to have kids, and he didn't. That was it. They were done. So that's one way you could interpret it. You could also look at it from God's point of view, who many times through Scripture we see God as the one who both opens and closes wombs. There's several examples of that in Scripture. Um, I think that's more likely. Um, Because on one level, she'd lived a life of dishonor to God. God was never in her her target or her eyesight. That's not who she was serving. She was serving herself, and we can and see that pretty clearly. But I'll give you another example then. If if her womb was working and everything was okay, um, we can go back. If you remember, she married David Young. She was given to him because of Goliath. They were married for a while. There came a point where David was on, on the run. He was running for his life, living in caves. And at one point during that season of time, she left him. And she went and married someone else. I don't know if maybe she thought she found someone else who had a better chance of being king. I don't really know. But she had another husband for a season. And then at some point, David comes back and says, Hey, you're my wife. And he took her back and brought her back home and brought her back into his life. If her womb was open, she would have had a kids with that guy. Or if it was a David issue, she'd have had kids with that guy and he would have had kids with other wives. I mean, it's not a David issue. It's really a her issue. Her womb never was open and her heart never was toward God. So I think that's probably a better interpretation. Either way, she never had kids. And scripture does point to this. It said she dishonored David, he cut her off, and she never had kids. That's it. Done with her. So... You could go with one or the other. It's not worth fighting over, but uh, it sure looks like it was a God thing to me. Um, the big point out of this is to see David's heart and that he is not in any way embarrassed to humble himself before the Lord in worship. He doesn't worry about the pomp and circumstance of being a king. He says, this is not about me. This is about God. I want to go a couple more examples real quick. And I'll close this message down because this was the longest one. I got a couple short ones, but I want to see just a couple more real quick. This one I'll mostly just talk about and we'll read a little bit. I want to go to Esther uh, briefly. I don't have time to tell the whole story. It's a, one of my favorite books in the Bible. It's very fascinating. But I'm jumping right into the middle of the book of Esther. So you got this guy named Mordecai. He's, he, I believe he's Esther's uncle. And he's a hero in the book of Esther. Early in his life he overheard two guys plotting to kill the king. And so he came and let the king know, hey, these two servants ears are plotting to kill you. And so he looked into it, found out it was true, had them executed, and realized, Mordecai saved my life. Okay? But he never really did anything with it. All right? Years pass, a new guy comes to town who rises to number two in the, in the nation, and uh, he's full of himself. This, his name's Haman. And He's number two in the land, not number one, but as he cruises through the land, everyone bows down as Haman comes by, and he kind of likes that. He likes it a lot. He is very much full of himself, and everybody treats him with great honor and respect and bows before him except this one Jewish guy named Mordecai. Mordecai refuses to bow, and rightfully so. He gets so mad about it. He's like, all right, I've had it with this Mordecai guy. He is a thorn in my side. I'm going to kill that guy. And he has gallows erected. He's like, I'm going to hang him on those gallows. And when he had everything ready, then the next morning he says, I'm going into the king. I'm going to lay out my plan. I'm going to get the king's approval. And I'm going to hang that guy. We'll be done with Mordecai. And so morning of, he's all excited. He's like, I'm going to kill Mordecai today. He's in a good mood. He's on his way to work, headed to the king's palace. He's number two in the land. People bowing as he goes. It's going to be a good day. Meanwhile, what Haman didn't know is that night before, king couldn't sleep. And he was just getting grumpy because he couldn't fall asleep. And so what did he do? He called one of his servants and said, come read me a bedtime story. Maybe not really that, but what he had him read? Read me the chronicles of my reign as king. 
Remind me how wonderful the years have been and all the wonderful things I've done as king. That's really what's going on. And so he's laying in bed, can't sleep, and he's got a a little servant sitting there. Well, and this year you did this and you did that. And he's just reading along. And he gets to the part, oh yeah, and then there was the time when your two servants, so-and-so and and -and so-and-so, were going to try and kill you, and Mordecai saved your life. He let you know what was going on. And the king stops. And he said, now what did I do to honor Mordecai for saving my life? And they said, well, nothing. And he said, that's not right. I'll give him that. And he said, something needs to be done for Mordecai. He saved my life. So that's on the king's mind. So that's kind of where I want to pick up. Esther chapter 6, verse 1. Here we go. So that night the king could not sleep. So one, so he, uh, one was commanded to bring the book of the records of the Chronicles, and they were read before the king. And it was found written that Mordecai had told of Big Thana. That's a cool name, isn't it? Big Thana. And Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, the doorkeepers who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. That's his Aramaic name. His Greek name was King Xerxes. That's easier to say. But anyway, then the king said, uh, What honor or dignity has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? And the king's servants who attended him said, nothing's been done for him. And I'll just point out, you'll remember this, people of honor remember what has been done for them. It's honorable to remember what people have done for you. It's honorable to remember what God has done for you. So the king said, who's in the court? Now Haman had just entered the court of the king's palace to suggest that the king hang Mordecai on the gallows that he had prepared for him. And the king's servant said to him, Haman's here, standing in the court. And the king said, send him in. So Haman came in, and the king asked him, What shall be done for the man whom the king delights to honor? Now Haman thought in his heart, Who would the king delight to honor more than me? He is so full of himself. He's like, Oh, this can be an even better day than I thought. He's excited. So he gets he goes overboard. Oh, this was awesome. Um, so Haman answered the king, Ah, for the man whom the king delights to honor, let a royal robe be brought, which the king has worn, and a horse on which the king has ridden, which has a royal crest placed on its head. Then let this robe and horse be delivered to the hand of one of the king's most noble princes that he may array the man whom the king delights to honor. And then parade him on horseback through the city square and proclaim before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then the king said to Haman, Hurry, take the robe and the horse as you have suggested and do so for Mordecai the Jew who sits within the king's gate. Leave nothing undone that you have spoken, all of all that you have spoken. Oh, this day turns south for Haman. Oh, it turns south. Now, all of a sudden, he is leading the horse through town with Mordecai on it in the robe and the crown and the crest on the horse. And he's going, here's what the king does to the guy he wants to honor. <laughs> I'm, I'm just picturing Haman. He's walking down the street yelling at, thinking, somebody shoot me. Shoot me now. <laughs> this is the worst day of my life. Woke up thinking it's going to be the best day of my life. I just want to point that out, though. That's honor. He was honoring Mordecai. Why? For the things he'd done. I love that story. Any, any chance to talk about it is fun. One more real quick, and then we'll close this morning. I'm going to go to Luke chapter 19. This is at the end of Jesus' earthly ministry. He's coming in Jerusalem for the last time uh, before the Passover, and he goes to the cross to to pay the price for our redemption. Um, But in Luke 19, verse 35, they brought um, him to Jesus. The him there, because I'm jumping in the middle, that's the colt. That's the, the, what did you say, a donkey that they put Jesus on, and they brought him in, and they shouted, Hosanna. That's the event we're looking at. So they're putting Jesus on a colt. And they threw their own clothes on the colt. And they set Jesus on him. And as he went, they they spread clothes on the road. Now as he was drawing near, 
the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Now, in this crowd, they're making a big deal over Jesus. And rightfully so. They were honoring Him, and it was 100% the right thing to do. All right? And I, there is a part of me that is thinking, I don't know if they had advance notice. I don't think that they've had it on our calendar for the last couple months. Now, hey, on Tuesday the 6th, that's the day we put Jesus on a donkey and we're going to bring him into Jerusalem and we're going to shout. I don't think so. I don't think John had a chance to call Peter the night before and left a message saying, now, Peter, hey, hey, it's John. Don't forget, tomorrow's the day we're going to get a colt and we're going to put Jesus on there. And that's the day we're going to throw our coats in the road. Now, that new coat I bought you last Christmas, don't you wear that tomorrow. Don't want that trampled on. I don't think any of that happened. I think it was very much spur of the moment. But all this is going on to make a big deal over Jesus. But notice it said the whole multitude of the disciples. So it's not just the twelve. He had a circle of over a hundred disciples that followed him for the whole three years. Now, he had that inner circle of 12, but there was an outer circle. It was from that outer circle that he drew the 70 that he sent out, if you remember. They were all disciples, and he called them disciples. So that group is shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, glory to God in the highest. But the rest of Jerusalem wasn't. And you know the Pharisees weren't. They were trying to stop it. Um, verse 39, some of the Pharisees called to him from the crowd. They were watching, saying, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But he answered and said, I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. I'll tell you one thing. I can't control what other people do, but I can control what I do. I don't ever want it to be said that stones had to cry out and worship God because I wouldn't do my part. Say We can do our part. I don't want rocks doing my job. Um, So as they made it into Jerusalem, verse 41, Jesus begins to cry. He begins to weep. Uh, Verse 41, as he drew near, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, if you had known, even you, especially in this day, the things that make for your peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you and close in on every side and level you and your children within you to the ground. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another. And why? Because you did not know the time of your visitation. What's he talking about? Even this paraded entry, all of this was prophesied. This was Jesus' first coming. And it was absolutely 100% a fulfillment of so many prophecies, it's mathematically impossible for him not to be the Messiah. Get into apologetics. But all of this is a fulfillment of prophecy, and it's not random And it was not just by chance. It wasn't that God woke up one day and said, hey, let's go ahead and do that today. Jesus, go be born of Mary. No, all of this was, in the Hebrew word is moed. It is appointed times. And so many of the things in Jesus' ministry leading up to, including the birth and things of his life, were appointed times. And they're happening exactly the way God said they would happen. Every bit of it. And he's saying, you didn't recognize it. This was an appointed time. This was a moed. And you didn't recognize me for who I was. He was come as the Messiah. But he didn't come looking the way they wanted. And they were offended by his humanity. And they said, no, we don't want nothing to do with you. And it's interesting to me. I won't make a big point over this. They should have been shouting Hosanna. And instead they were quiet. And I go back to what he said. He said, if you had known. I'm in verse 42. If you had known, especially in this your day, 
the things that make for your peace. But then he says, now your eyes are closed. And he begins to prophesy what happened 40 years later when um, the Roman army surrounded Jerusalem and leveled it. Over a million people died in that battle when the Roman army leveled Jerusalem. And it was not a city again for a long time. And he's prophesying that. But he said, he said, if you had known the things that make for your peace, it almost paints a picture. If you had recognized me, it would have changed the very future of this city. Could that invasion by the Roman army have been avoided? It's almost implied. I, I won't make a big argument out of it, but it sure looks like it. If them knowing had made any difference, he wouldn't have made this statement. So apparently them knowing or not knowing did have a difference on how some things played out. I just find that interesting. Was it a big deal, though? It was a huge deal. This was the first coming of the Messiah, the creator of the universe, and they should have been shouting. They should have been honoring him. And why did so many not honor him? Offended by humanity, they're thinking... Remember like when he went into Nazareth? Who's he think he is? Isn't that Joseph and Mary's boy? You know, the carpenter's son? Who does he think he is? And they, and they wouldn't recognize him for who he was. And you hear that same tone of disrespect. They did not honor him. But like I said a moment ago, and I'll say it about us, we can't control them, but we can control us. We can recognize him for who he is. And we can honor him by thanking him for what he's already done, by acknowledging who he is. And at times, certainly at home, it's not humbling to get on your knees before him at home when nobody is around. But even from time to time, in a safe place like this, taking a moment to honor him and bow before him and worship him, we can humble ourselves before him and give him the honor that is 100% due him. Amen. Honor makes a big deal when it's appropriate. If you look at David, and I'll throw this in, he even emptied, he didn't empty, he opened the purse strings. What? He didn't have to send food home with everybody, and you know that costs money. There are times when you're doing it for God, you do it with excellence. And you go ahead and spend the money. Why? Because he's worth it. And it's the expression of your heart. Amen? Amen. Stand to your feet.